The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Credit Edge, a weekly markets podcast. My name is James Crombie. I'm a senior editor at Bloomberg. This week, we're very pleased to welcome Mark Cherimutu from Hayfin Capital Management, a private credit company mostly focused on Europe. How are you, Mark? Good. How are you doing? Very well. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today. And I'm very keen to get your thoughts on the private debt market. And from Bloomberg Intelligence, it's great to see Julie Hung, who covers consumer credit. Welcome back, Julie. Thank you for having me back. Also delighted to see Lisa Lee, who covers credit markets from London. Brilliant. See you again, Lisa. Thanks for having me on. So let's start with you, Mark. Great to have you on the credit edge. The big question, and everyone keeps keeps telling me it's the it's the fact, golden age for private credit. Is that still the case? 2024, is it a golden age? Does it continue? It's uh it's hard to look past it. I mean, if you think about the fundamentals, you know, double digit yield. First lien security, stable companies, larger companies than ever being financed by private credit. It's hard to, to look past that. Um, the fundamentals are, are stronger now than they've ever been. And the technicals which are driving the growth of private credit, we see extending beyond 24 and, and further. So we, we actually think uh, we're, we're very bullish on the market. So what does that actually mean for 2024? Is that bigger and bigger deals? Is it record levels of fundraising? Is it more disintermediation of Wall Street? Better returns? I mean, what, what specifically are we talking about when we're talking about, you know, fantastic times in, in private debt? I, I think there's two, uh, two elements to the growth which sometimes get mixed. There's, there's, there's the white space growth for private credit in Europe, uh, which is just larger companies, more diversified companies and more sponsors using us as an asset class. So that's one area of growth. And, and there's lots of reasons why that's continuing to grow. You know, there's more banking assets in Europe than there is in the US. Uh, we've got further to go in terms of that um, uh, deleveraging of the of the European banking balance sheet. So there's more and, and the replacement being private credit. So that's one element. And then there's also the, the overlap with, with the public markets. I mean, one of the drivers over the last two years of, of activity within in, in Europe in private credit has been that battleground over what used to be serviced by the broadly public, broadly syndicated markets and what's gone what's gone to private. And so and, and we we foresee that continuing and, and there being a coexistence between the two asset classes. So we see growth in, in, in both directions. Talking about these big private credit funds, we're now seeing possibly a record twenty billion dollar fund. What is the fundraising environment right like right now? It's uh, it, look, it's it's fundraising is tough for everyone. Um, it's taking longer than ever before. So fundraisers, which you cycles, which used to be twelve months, are now now eighteen months. But I think what what we're seeing is there's a there's a con- concentration going on. So the bigger managers are the the ones with the better track records ones with more established origination networks 
they're the ones that are really succeeding. Those which have the better relationships with the sponsors and so source the better deals and get the better terms. And that you're seeing that consolidation happening. From a, from a more macro perspective, Europe is just really interesting, right? Because if you a lot of the asset allocators are over-indexed private equity relative to credit, and they're over-indexed US to Europe. So from a diversification perspective, European private credit is a great place to, to be allocating in, in 24. And so whilst there's a lot of people raising and it is taking longer, the more successful managers are the ones which are really gaining traction. And do you find some of the interested LPs from the Middle East, from the US, from Asia? I know there's broad array of interest, but if you had to pick a certain region which is most particularly interested in European private credit, what would that be? And where are you you guys focused? It, uh, I, I don't think there's any one particular region, but we've really noticed an uptick in interest in the Middle East, in Asia, and even in the US looking to diversify their portfolios and, and, and really attracted by the opportunity in, in Europe. And so, you know, there, there's, there's, there's multiple touch points and multiple areas of, of interest in Europe right now. What's your first um, destination though on the on an airplane? Is it is it Toronto? Is it Dubai? I mean, what's where do you where do you like to go mostly for your fundraising? <laughs> I uh, I spend a lot of time in the U.S. and a lot of time in in the Middle East, uh, but it's uh, I, I'm I don't think I'm unique in that way in that respect. Just back to the sort of golden age idea that we were talking about. Um, we've had some guests on here recently raising a lot of red flags about private debt. They're maybe not as close to you, um, close to the market as you are. Um, but, you know, they talk about the speed of the market's growth. It's already bigger than the U.S. high yield bond market, and it didn't take very long to get there. Um, there's, you know, seem to be no transparency, not much liquidity. All the risks, of, again, of, of companies falling behind on debt payments as the rates, you know, they, they may be coming down, but they are very high in relative terms. There's going to be a refinancing um, wall. Um, and at the same time, there are a lot of, you know, relatively liquid and high yielding opportunities out there, you know, including government bonds. Um, so you don't really need to stretch for the return anymore. Some, you know, maybe maybe they are conflicted because they're trying to compete against you, but and it seems to come from the sell side, but they are calling it a bubble. Do you think that's justified? It's um, it, it's ironic that the banks are calling it a bubble, given that they're the ones <laughs> interested in trying to get into private credit. So I, I find that quite amusing. Um, look, it, it's there. Uh, it's incontestable. There has been rapid growth in in the asset class in Europe, in particular. Um, we've got we're still a long way behind the US, and so there's there's more runway. I think you'll find the sophistication of the larger managers in in thinking about risk in thinking about their regulatory framework, in thinking about the lines of defense are actually much more advanced and much more sophisticated than, than the outside world gives us credit for. I think credit selection, I think is is, a mu is much better than people give us credit for. I think we're also going into a period where that um, there's gonna be a bifurcation between those managers who have you know picked well, they've got really good performing portfolios and more assets going in, and more concentration on those those uh, that that smaller group who are who are the better pickers, right? And the, they're the better stewards of capital. I think that you know we've been through a, a ten year period of low interest rates, low defaults, uh, relatively attractive growth, and and now's the time where you're going to actually find out who's who's really good at this, right? Who's really a good steward of capital? Because we're in, as you say, we're in an environment where rates are still elevated, growth is still anemic. There's still some systemic risks to uh, to the economy, so 
Um, I think it's, uh, I understand people's concern, but as a participant on the inside, you know, looking out, uh, things are actually less bleak than you'd, uh, you'd imagine. Mark, are there specific sectors that you like? Yeah, I think, I mean, it's, it's, it's no, um, it's no secret that we have, uh, we like healthcare. We have a dedicated healthcare team, uh, both in the U S and in Europe. It's been a great source of deployment for us. Um, the more stable and, and resilient parts of healthcare in particular, um, you know, we're not unique. We like software, like a lot of other private credit guys, uh, we like picking the better businesses within the software world. We know that not all software businesses are created equally. And we like sort of, you know, the very market leading professional services sector where you've got a real uh, reason to, to exist. Uh, consumer non-discretionary, you know, real downside protection. Those are the things, those are the areas that we spend a lot of our time on. On the software, Mark, how are these earnings holding up given that those types of deals, you know, they're generally known for heavy addbacks and synergy expectations? We've just gone through our uh, portfolio review and um, they're actually holding up really well. Uh, we've, for exactly those reasons that you mentioned, we've been paying a lot of attention to the performance and the monthly and quarterly uh, numbers. And actually top line is holding up uh, in the names that we have really, really well. So um, we've been pleased with uh, with performance in there. Any, are there any sectors that you, you avoid, Mark? Mm-hmm. That you just think are like kryptonite for private credit and for Haven? I think it's, I can't speak for the market as a whole, but, but we, we find uh, consumer exposed businesses with no downside protection really difficult, right? And, and particularly in this sort of environment where, you know, the rate, rate rises is affecting Joe consumer. And that's going to flow through to mortgages and, and affect disposable income. So, so that's, those are parts of the market that we struggle with. Uh, pure retail, for instance, work with no, no, no asset backing, really hard. You know, do you have a rating standard for uh, when when you're looking at what investments to make? Um, you want to like avoid um, very high yield, or uh, you know, you're you're looking more at the business um, more than just the credit ratings. I mean, we we, we don't take a, a credit rating approach uh, to th- to the investments we look at. Uh, we are very focused on credit. You know, credit selection for us is is the most important thing that we do, and so diligence, understanding sustainability of earnings, you know, free cash flow, real threats to the business, uh, both competitive as well as systemic. You know, those are the those are the real core things that we focus on. We're we, we sort of look at look at credit from a from a fundamentalist perspective. On the returns, Mark, I mean, they are very high in relative terms. I mean, high teens yields on some of these deals. That sounds great from the investor standpoint. But for an issuer, how sustainable is it to them, you know, to, to pay that level of um, interest for the long run? I mean, are you not putting a, putting all of these companies under a huge amount of pressure? Um, yeah, it's look, we're, we're a floating rate product, right? So that's a benefit to our investors, but obviously, as you, as you know, as you pointed out, it's uh, that's the burden of our portfolio companies. Um, we focus very much on free cash flow. And so we focus on even with the rates where they are and the margins where they are from a market perspective, we focus on the businesses that can, can, can support those. And, and, and actually we've seen leverage come down in the last 12 months in a direct, as a direct result of where, where rates are. And so, there's a right sizing of the balance sheet to, to, to try and address um, that elevated um, interest rate burden. 
Do you think there's come a time when there's going to be a lag effect of all the rate rises and the interest rate payments? Because you're right, corporate earnings have held up very well for many, many people. Many portfolios are doing okay. But as we get into almost the third year of rate hikes and perhaps a recessionary environment, what do you think about the future? We're um, we're, we're, we're cautious on, on the outlook. Uh, credit investors by nature are more downside mm-hmm. uh, perspective than, than upside. Um, we are cautious around how that lag effect and, and fully seeing the effect of having these elevated rates. We're going to have elevated rates in Europe for much longer than the US, like if you just look at where, where the curves are. And so it's really about sustainability of business models. It's really about you know, picking the ones which have a reason to exist and have an, an ability and scale to cope with the pressures and, and still manage that uh, burden. But, you, but you're right, there are gonna be some companies that just can't. And, and one of the things we've done in the last 12 months is try and avoid some of the smaller companies, which, which are the ones which really generally struggle in, in the face of macroeconomic pressure. Uh, so we've, we've, we've very much focused our attention on, on moving the median size of, of companies up in our portfolio. In terms of the competitive landscape, Mark, you've seen a ton of um, new entrants come into private credit. Everyone wants to be involved. It's the big new thing. Um, but does, I mean, we've talked on this show also about the, the risks that that brings of perhaps less sophisticated participants coming in and doing deals that maybe shouldn't be done and those, those causing problems down the line. But, but in terms of you know, your business, are you seeing fee pressure from this? Are you seeing investors ask for lower management fees or greater oversight or anything else to try and, you know, because they, because they can, I mean, they, you know, they can pick and choose. I think um, as a general comment, look, investors are very savvy. They're, they, they realize that there's a lot of people coming to, to, to raise funds. And so a, f- a focus on the economics around, around the managers they do want to allocate to. Um, I think there is still a premium for those that have long uh, established track records, uh, have real, presence and subsistence in the markets and and and, and have real originating networks which um which can help in in low MA environments as we've seen so i think there you're right there are new entrants you're right that creates a dynamic that may influence um the terms on on raising but i think that, you know our experience and i think the experience of our peers has been people flight you know people uh flock to quality uh and there's a price to pay for that uh, so I think it's still an attractive environment for us to for, for us and our peers to raise. Um, you say you've gone towards more bigger companies, and last year we saw the biggest private credit loan in Europe, and that entailed a syndication of a number of lenders. What do you think about private credit and these sort of almost lightly syndicated deals where you see 20 somewhat lenders in a private credit deal? It's sort of a little bit different from what has traditionally been what private credit's supposed to be, one lender, maybe two lenders at most, and almost back to the way the leveraged loan market used to be, say, 15 years ago. Yeah, I, look, there's clearly, um, there's been a shift in the last 12 months. Um, the prevalence of clubs in Europe is 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 on the rise, and I think that's a that's a trend and theme that we're going to see throughout this year and, and beyond. Uh, I'd say, I would say that the twenty plus lender syndicates is is the outlier. I mean, we've only had six deals in Europe that are above a billion. Um, I think the sweet spot in terms of syndicate compensation that we're seeing is more in the two to five range, and there I, I think you you've got 
and that comes back to the, the theme of concentration. You've got the same group of people looking at the same assets and, and being clubbed together. They're generally ones which think about credit and risk in the same way. They generally think about documentation in the same way. So I think you, you, you're right. There are these outliers, but actually the market is more centering on a much lower number of, of participants. And that I think is going to continue. Okay. And do you worry about any of these syndications, about liquidity, about having um, almost like going after this broadly syndicated market? And now with the banks feeling a little bit more assured, do you think they'll come back for some of the deals that they've lost? I think I, I, we're um, we're not naive, right? They're, they're, uh, we know that the banks are actively pitching to come and refinance some of the private credit deals that were done away from them in the, in the last two years. Um, I happen to think that there's a there's a natural medium where we can where the two assets coexist, right? And but it goes back to the point I meant at the beginning. That's not our sole source of growth. Actually, the more attractive source of growth is the systemic leakage of capital out of the system and into private credit. And so, I, I'm I I actually think that you know yes we'll see more activity in the banks. Yes, there'll be a bit more competition around those type of assets. But actually, not that's that's good for us, right? Because we've got plenty of other things to do. When you look around at everything you cover, Mark, um, it's a big universe. What what are you most excited about for twenty twenty four? Where's the big opportunity? Um, I think in for Europe in private credit, the big opportunity is going to come in refinancings, right? Because uh, there there's inevitably going to be an uptick in LBO activity. Right, twenty three was pretty muted from an M and A uh, perspective. I think if you talk to market participants, you know, we're not going to see an immediate snapback. It's probably back-ended. Uh, but I think what we what is going to be interesting is we've seen almost no refinancing in the last 24 months. Um, and there's there are large maturity walls in 26 and 27. You've got some in 25 as well. And so I think 24 is going to be the year of, 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 uh, of, of the, the rebooting of that refinancing opportunity and 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 a particular interest for us is a lot of these companies are not um they haven't delevered enough to be able to be refinanced dollar for dollar in cash pay terms so i think you're going to have to you're going to have to recut some of these balance sheets which is going to be provide a really interesting direct lending product at a at a lower attachment point but also for 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 firms like ourselves who can be have more flexible capital to look at junior debt in different strategies to plug that gap because we whilst the private equity community will probably help you know grease the wheels by putting a bit of equity we don't think that they're going to solve the whole problems so firms that have that in their locker can uh, and be able to look at subordinated debt in refinancings through different strategies i think it's going to that's going to be a really interesting opportunity and so before we dig in on the consumer sector with Julie, I'm going to keep you here, Julie. Um, Mark, I did want to ask you about consolidation in this industry. Um, that seems to be something that people are talking about. Um, in addition, um, is Hayfin for sale? <laughs> I think, you know, it's, it's uh, well, we're flattered that we're getting so much interest, but I think, you know, it's hard to comment on, on market speculation. Um, what, what, what I think is interesting around the, 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 interest that you mentioned is just the, the focus on European private credit and how that's uh, how people are looking at that as the next real big growth driver. Uh, and, and that sort of over indexation point that I mentioned earlier around private equity in the US and really focusing on European private credit. I think that's, that's super exciting. 
I think the consolidation point, it, it's we're seeing a concentration within fewer, fewer hands, right? It's the bigger managers that are getting bigger. It's the bigger managers that are having more traction in fundraising. And it's the bigger managers that are sourcing the better deals. And so that, I think that, that trend is going to continue. We, we see ourselves as part of that. And just be clear on, on the Europe point. I mean, is it because it's cheap versus the US? Is, is that the opportunity? I think it's, 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 there's a diversification point from where asset allocators have allocated in the past and what they have in their portfolio. But there's also an inefficiency in Europe in the European markets, which is which is attractive to to um, to uh, to monetize, right? The the you've got a patchwork of insolvency regimes across Europe. You've got uh, differences in structures between Italy and and the UK and France. You've got um, you've got differences in terms of the banking landscape and uh, what state of of do deleveraging their, their corporate balance sheets, all of which provides lots of different pockets of opportunities and lots of different inefficiencies that really play into the hands of, of private credit lenders. So that there's there's two elements to um, to uh, to the to the interest in our market. Great stuff. Mark Chirimutu from Hayfin Capital Management. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks a lot. Do come back soon and let us know how it's all going. And Lisa Lee with Bloomberg News in London, many thanks for joining. Thank you for having me. Read all of Lisa's great scoops on the Bloomberg Terminal and, of course, at Bloomberg.com. And so, Julie Hung with Bloomberg Intelligence in New York. We're keeping you here. Thank you so much for uh, joining us on the show. Thank you for having me again. You have a few theories about Ozempic, the weight loss drug, and how it affects the companies you cover. Um, I'm very interested in, in sort of digging deeper into that. But but I want to kind of start by breaking it down in real really simple terms how does a weight loss treatment that you know is really in the news now everyone's talking about it how can that affect the credit of food and drinks companies that you cover i mean is it really big enough to do that um yeah so you know if you look at um it, bloomberg has this really good function ds go um document search go um if you do a search on um, the keywords like ozempic or wagobi um those are the big brand names for diet drugs um, over the past few quarters, you'll see that um, the mentions have increased um, uh, in the quarterly earnings. So there is this increased concern or, you know, just a curiosity about how these diet drugs are going to impact the sector in general. Um, the way they work is they suppress appetites, um, suppress your craving for sugar. So consumers are expected to eat less. And you know the the consumers who have been on these diet drugs have been shown to have less cravings for snacking. Um, they're eating less portions. So as that impacts food and beverage, um, the general idea is that sales are going to be lower um, across the sector. Is it big enough though on a sort of macro level? Because I can I can see it on a you know micro level, and maybe there are small groups of um, you know people that that really need this kind of treatment, and you know very keen to lose weight very quickly but does it you know just on a macro across the u.s could it really affect the bottom line of a of a company yeah i mean our view is that you know the short-term impact um is that it's pretty negligible um you know we have heard from big companies like coca-cola and pepsico mondelez who have said that so far what they've seen is um very little impact um, I think it's more headline risk right now than it is going to change the bottom line for these companies. Um, what, you know, when 
when the equity markets reacted to this back in October, and that was triggered by um, a comment by um, you know big retailers saying that they're seeing their food sales are down because of use of diet drugs. Um, the equity markets, um, you know, to 2023, if you look at the um, S&P packaged food index, it's down about 10%, whereas the credit markets for um, food and beverage, um, the spreads have tightened by about 30 basis points. So credit markets are taking it a lot more in stride. And I think it's more um, going back to headline risk. Um, the bigger picture is that, um, is this going to be a game changer? Um, it, you know, we, we think that it could be because there are also benefits to, um, you know, heart health and kidney health and liver health. Um, but what a lot of these food and beverage companies have been doing for many, many years um, is they they watch consumer behavior. They watch, you know, how consumers eat and their lifestyle changes because this is a big social risk for them. So they have been tailoring their product portfolio to lower sugar, um, no calorie, low calorie, smaller package sizing, which is uh, something they've been doing for many years. So they're adjusting they have they already started to adjust to this trend before the diet drugs came out. So is it going to impact their bottom line longer term? Um, I, you know, I don't really think so because they are doing everything they're supposed to be doing right now to prepare for wider use um, in the future. And James, you brought up a really good point that um, you know there's a small segment of the population using these drugs right now. So again, in the short term, there's a lot of obstacles to using these drugs, which again, like we just think that the short term, you know, equity impact was like overdone. Um, it's very expensive. If you look at the studies, I think Wagovi is about seventeen thousand five hundred dollars um, annually, and that's before rebates and discounts. Um, it's a, an injection, which is very cumbersome for a lot of users. And, um, you know, they're competing against true diabetics who need the drugs, so supply is limited. So uh, right now there is not that widespread use. So I, I think, you know, in the short to even the medium term, like you're not going to see an impact to the bottom line. But what about leverage trends? Though? I mean, that seems to be the story of, of the moment is that a lot of companies um, are just getting hit because they took on too much debt. Um, when when it was cheap, now it's much more expensive, and they're hitting a refinancing wall. Are there any companies in your sector? You know, even though this may be sort of a marginal, more of a headline impact, are there any that just have too much leverage now, and it could sort of um, start to affect them in some way? Yeah. So you know, the the consumer sector, you know, our if you look at our our outlook, um, and even um, our message since. 2023, they have been focusing on net leverage trends. They have um, net leverage targets that they're working towards, and they have been um, more aware of how much debt they have on their balance sheets. Um, I think, you know, when COVID happened in 2020, they were taken by surprise, and um, a lot of companies were over levered at the time. Um, they don't want to be caught in a situation like that anymore. So they're focusing a lot on just very balanced capital allocation policies. Um, if they're doing anything that's shareholder friendly or if they're doing M&A that's debt funded, they're doing it within the confines of a conservative financial policy or within the confines of their net leverage targets. So what we're seeing as we're entering 2024 is generally a very healthy balance sheet, very good liquidity levels for the consumer food and beverage sector. On the consumer side, though, I mean, um, we do know that the consumer is under a bit of pressure. There's been inflation. 
um, COVID savings have, have wound down, you know, the rates are very high to borrow. So is there any impact there or is this just, you know, stuff that consumers will will buy whatever? You know, volume trends have been weak. And I think, um, you know, when you see that consumer companies are raising prices, um, it has impacted consumer purchasing behavior, but it hasn't stopped them from buying food. You have to eat. And that's why it's consumer staple, um, because you, com- com- compared to you know what Mark was saying, like the retailers, where non discretionary, um, you're always going to see purchases. Whereas you know they could hold off on some of the um, personal care purchases, home appliance purchases. But when you're looking at food and beverage, um, the, the sales have been um, pr- overall pretty stable compared to other sectors, um, just because of the need to have to eat, um, have to drink. And um, a lot of these companies, they've been very wary of their price increases, but you know they have been able to pass some of these costs on to consumers. You do see a volume impact, but that's getting a little better because food, food inflation trends in the US um, have been moderating a tad bit. Are there, is there any kind of um, going down to generic brands by consumers. I mean, I, I don't see the difference between the two different types of Rice Krispies, but that's just me. My kids do, unfortunately. But uh, do we do we see that that happening? It is some private label trade down, but it's not as big as we had expected. So there's a company, um, Conagra Barons, that uh, reported second quarter recently. And um, what they're saying is like they're their sales were a little weaker, their EBITDA was a little weaker. But what they're saying is like, it's not really a trade down to private label, but it's more the consumer is just stretching their budget more. They're going to the supermarkets less. They're working through their pantry and um, their freezers. And they're making, they're buying more multi-meals, things that they can um, have leftovers instead of just one meal opportunity. So it's not that they're trading down, but they're just stretching their budget a little bit more. So is there any kind of relative value argument right now? I mean, from a credit investor standpoint, are there companies that are particularly attractive or companies that are, you know, looking more risky in in, in this phase of the cycle? Yeah, I mean, when you look at the overall sector, I mean, spreads have tightened um, throughout 2023. But if you look within the sector, there are pockets of opportunity. Um, you know, we we do see that, you know, spreads are still a little wide for Kraft or Molson Coors, um, even Conagra, like spreads, spreads are a little wider than some of their peers. And what we like about these companies is that they are working towards a very healthy net leverage target, and um, it's not fully priced in yet. And are there any other um, events or um, any kind of things on the horizon for the next 12 months that make you particularly worried for your industries or particularly excited about the opportunity? Yeah, I mean, I I cover tobacco, I cover consumer products, I cover um, food and beverage. So there's a a, a lot of different things that are coming down the pipeline. I mean, one big thing for the tobacco sector is the menthol ban in the United States. Um, Everyone's waiting for a ruling on that, which has been delayed. some of that is political, but I think when when there is, um, you know, we think that the ban is going to come into effect because um, menthol cigarettes are banned in Europe and Canada, so it makes sense that um, the United States would follow. Um, but a lot of the tobacco companies, they have been preparing for this news. They have been focused more on their non-combustible segment, um, and um, you know, and, and their alternative. Um, 
um, alternative products like next generation products. So um, in addition to that, like they also have been focusing on like healthy balance sheets. So we think they'll be able to manage through that. Um, but also, you know, just looking at general consumer trends, um, anything can happen. You know, we didn't expect COVID to happen back in 2020. We didn't expect us um, to be in a full-blown pandemic. Um, you know, we didn't expect that, you know, consumers were going to be in lockdown. So that's always on our minds. And kind of going back to something that Mark said that, you know, credit investors were always kind of like, you know, the Debbie Downers. And, you know, we're also looking at the worst case scenario. So even though, you know, volume trends in food um, is trending better, they might still be negative, but sequentially they're looking better. It's always in the back of our minds that, you know, something bad can happen. Um, and I think a lot of these companies, when you listen to them, they're also just a little more cautious. Like they're not coming out and saying that everything's turned around, even though food inflation trends are getting better. Um, they still keep it in the back of their minds that consumers are still stretched. Um, you know, budgets are stretched and, you know, they're not calling for, you know, complete turnaround just yet. I'm mostly worried about the US election, but we still need to eat and drink, right? Yes, yes, exactly. Julie Hung with Bloomberg Intelligence. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, James. We look forward to having you back on the show very soon. Thank you. And thanks again to Mark Cherimutu from Hayfin, as well as to Lisa Lee from Bloomberg News. Read all of Lisa's great scoops on the terminal and at Bloomberg.com. Please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Apple, Google, and Spotify. Give us a review. Tell your friends or email me directly at jcrombie8 at bloomberg.net. That's J-C-R-M-B-I-E, as in my surname, and the number eight at bloomberg.net. I'm James Crombie. It's been a pleasure having you. Join us again next week on The Credit Edge. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.